Hey everybody, my name is Axel Villamil. We're back on 24 Shades of Blue with two amazing guests in the studio today. We have Aaron Dale. We have him as the military veteran wellness program coordinator and Jeremy Burns as police constable. How are you guys doing? Good, are you? Great, thank you. Good, good. I had my coffee. I'm awake. I'm here in person with you. This is what I like. I'm tired of digital and uh, just seeing people through a screen. Tired of it too. Yeah, I bet. I bet. But we're here. So I'm really excited. And I mean, listen, it's been a rough couple of weeks because I've been exhausted. And I think seasonal depression is a big thing. And, you know, I think that is definitely one of the big topics that we're going to be talking about today is our mental health and um, how it is in the forest and especially for our veterans. Um, so the first question I have is, can you explain what that the veteran wellness program is and why it's important to have programs like this in Canada? Me and Jeremy started policing in 2018 and we both have uh, military backgrounds and we weren't really sure what was available for veterans. And through some of our experiences on the road, we saw, we started asking our bosses the question about what can a police officer do for a military veteran? Uh, we called our friends, we uh, shopped around to different friends through our networks to Vancouver, Calgary, across the country and asked, hey, what do you guys do for veterans? And we got some responses, but overall we thought uh, there wasn't enough and there was a void that needed to be filled. And that's when um, we started talking and we started sharing kind of our situations and our stories about coming across military veterans. And then we, uh, we send up an email and uh, yeah, we, we recognize that there's a process for everything within Toronto police as, as police officers, there's a, a set procedure for every type of situation that we deal with to, meant to cover everything, but there wasn't one specifically to deal with veterans and veterans being a vulnerable group of people. There's a ton of funding and programs available to help them, but oftentimes the difficulty is accessing those programs. So, what we wanted to do was we wanted to design a program that made all of our Toronto Police members ambassadors to veteran wellness, ideally, and to help them kind of navigate the process to, to getting help and getting access to the benefits that are set up to help them. So we weren't designing benefits for them. We weren't creating anything that wasn't already there in that sense, but to help fill in a few gaps in the road. A lot of people will say, you know, oh, well, veterans fall through the cracks. Well, we just wanted to fill a few of those cracks and make it an easier process for them to get help. But Jeremy and I left the military and both had our hurdles to deal with. And we use some of these services. So Veterans Affairs Canada, the Royal Canadian Legion and OSIS, Operational Stress Injury Social Support Program. We used both all these services and they helped us a lot. In fact, uh, Jeremy helped me access uh, some of these services and point me in the right direction and overcome some of my own stigmas. And uh, I think the services really helped me. I know the services really helped Jeremy. And then when we were on the street, really quickly, we started coming across uh, veterans that needed help. Um, I think I was six weeks into my career. I still had a coach officer and uh, a guy was running around and trying to pick a fight with everybody in a two or three bar stretch. And uh they they grabbed the guy, threw him in the ambulance, and uh, they were basically told me, they're like, Aaron, you're the rookie. Go get a statement off this guy. So I was like, oh, okay. So I go in there and get a statement off this guy, and he's uh, handcuffed to the uh, – He's handcuffed to the stretcher. He's got all the tubes in him. They're, he's bloody everywhere. And I see like a, I see a military tattoo on his hand. So I'm like, hey, this guy's in the military. Cool. So I asked him and I knew his regiment and everything. And uh, then he tried to fight me as well. And I'm sitting here and I'm like, man, I did all this like 
hand-to-hand training for because I just got on the road and just got out of college. I'm like, great, this will be like my first big fight in the ambulance with a guy cuffed. So then I was like, oh, man, I pulled up my sleeve. I'm like, dude, I'm in the military too. And then I essentially told him that his life was needed a lot of help. I told him the terrorists were winning and uh, might not have been the best thing to say in all honesty, but uh, we ended up like really connecting. I connected him with Veterans Affairs, the Legion and OSIS. Uh, We kind of were crying and hugging by the end of that. And uh, after the call, I called Jeremy right after. I'm like, hey, listen to this crazy story about what happened. And Jeremy had his similar experiences. And then that conversation started uh, gaining traction. And we, uh, we ended up sending an email to our, uh, to my staff sergeant, and then the unit commander, uh, Mike Leonard, and then Tim Crone, with basically a pitch that we want to explore a way for Toronto police to help veterans better. The important thing to remember about, like, especially Aaron's story there, you know, there, there's people that might hear the story and think, uh, you know, oh, well, telling the guy who's in crisis that the terrorists are winning is, is maybe not the most sensitive thing. But what's important to remember is that especially with veterans, like that, that may be a language that that person understands, right? And the power of language is incredible. So if you can, if you can use a language with somebody that they understand that they identify with, then that, that goes a long way towards building that rapport, right? So when I heard Aaron's story, you know, my first thought was, wow, like you did you really have to say that to the guy? But then I got thinking about it and I went, no, you know what? That's perfect. That's exactly what the person probably needed to hear because then he realizes he's talking to somebody who understands where he's coming from. It's not just some, some police officer, right? It helps, it helps the person to see your face and to see who you are as opposed to just seeing a, a, a faceless cop in uniform, right? Of course. I mean, I would never, I would never understand, right? Because I've never been in the experiences that you both have, have lived through, especially as you're, you're serving. And clearly that's a language that only other people would understand. So that's really interesting to, to know. Now, I think as you're going on this journey, is that the why and, and why you started this? Is, that, is there more to this other than just this story? Like what about your own personal experiences? Is there, you know, your own mental health experiences as well? Absolutely. Um, so I didn't, I wasn't in the military very long. Uh, Aaron did many more years than I did. I served three and a half years uh, with the regular force and the infantry. I did one uh, tour of duty in Afghanistan with uh, Task Force 309 Battle Group. So I didn't have a, a long career of uh, being embedded in the veteran community. But I, I really felt when I, when I joined, I really felt like I was coming home. I really felt like this is exactly where I should be and exactly what I should be doing with my time. And I, I learned everything that I could possibly learn in the short amount of time that I was there. And when it was time to come home after my tour, that was enough for me. I I said, you know what, I don't, I think I achieved the objectives that I set out to achieve. And, you know, I think it's time for me to move home and get back to my family and, and try to make the transition back to civilian life. So when I came home, I was had, um, had a lot of difficulties with my mental health. My transition was was very rough, but you know, it was, I didn't know, I didn't have the help. I didn't have anybody around me who really understood what was going on. The unit that I served with is in Edmonton. So when I left all of my friends and comrades who I'd served with, they were all out there. So I came home to a very supportive family and a very supportive group of friends, but by nature that they weren't veterans, they didn't really understand kind of what I was going through. And I was not open. I wasn't open to talking to anybody who didn't really understand. Truthfully, I wasn't open to talking to anyone, period. How come? I didn't think anybody would understand. Um, you know, if you talk to 
if you talk to some veterans, I won't, I, I'm not a representative for the veteran community. I won't speak for everybody, but there's a lot of very complex emotions that come along with, um, with serving that come along with being a veteran. And if you've been to a combat zone, it, it's, there's all of the things that, that the media and, and people think happen, they do happen, but there's also a lot of other emotions connected to, to your service. If you were to ask, you know, an average civilian, well, how does it feel to come home from war? What is it? What does a soldier feel? They might say, well, they're probably happy to be home. You know, they're, they're elated that they, that they made it through their, their tour. Um, they're, they're proud of their service. But if I were to say to somebody, a veteran will feel shame about their service, that might seem like a really foreign concept to a lot of people. Well, why would a veteran feel shame? They've, they've done something that most Canadians would recognize as, as brave and honorable and, and, and service is, is held in such high esteem in our, in our society. But for me, I felt shame because I left the fight, yeah. right? I did one tour. It was almost seven months of my life. And then I just left and I, and I called it quits. I quit the military altogether, but the fight was still happening. You know, I had friends who went back for a second tour and some of them a third tour. I had one friend who had four tours of Afghanistan under his belt. And I left that fight. I left them to go back and fight on their own. And you don't, you don't leave your comrades on their own when, when you're a soldier, you don't do that. That's, that's, that's lesson number one. Right. Um, I felt shame that, uh, that I had given up. I had felt shame that I left the fight. Um, I didn't know, I didn't know how to just reintegrate back to civilian life. I didn't have any, any mentors. I didn't have anybody who was, who was leading me. I felt a lot of survivor's guilt and shame because, uh, while we were while we were serving, generally speaking, we had a, a fairly quiet tour as far as things go. It was a winter tour, uh, you know, fighting seasons in the summer, so it tends to be busier for for contacts with the enemy and that type of thing. However, uh, we experienced a lot of IEDs. We dealt with a lot of a lot of IEDs um, on my tour, so there was a feeling that I hadn't quite accomplished what I set out to accomplish. Um, and when I think back to the soldiers that we lost when I was there, I felt like I owed them something. Mm -hmm. And I felt like I had chosen my own self over, over continuing the fight to help make their sacrifices worthwhile. I can remember there was a situation we had, we were on a patrol um, with the newer group of guys that were coming in and it's called a relief in place. So they will, they will come with my, platoon or section, whoever, whoever's going on a patrol that day. And we patrol together as a team, right? Um, them being inexperienced, not, they haven't been there and we've been there the entire seven months. So it's a handover so that we can share intelligence. We can say, you know, this is a dangerous road or that's a dangerous grape field, or this is the elder who owns this field, or this is the person who lives here and kind of introduce them, give them the lay of the land, let them let them kind of cut their teeth on patrol a few times with a group of guys who were experienced. And the morning, two weeks before we left, uh, there was a large patrol going out that I was supposed to be on. And I was given the option to stay behind. Um, and I, I don't think, I don't think that I had ever, that I had ever stayed behind really on too many other patrols. I, if my section was going, I generally was going, um, unless my role was to do something else during the patrol. 
And so it was strange. It was strange that I was in that situation that I was offered a chance to stay behind on the patrol. But uh, I thought about it, and you know, I was like, oh, "We're out of here in two weeks. You know, what's what's the big deal? We're it's one patrol. They're going to be back by lunch. There's a lot of guys on it. You know, there was a dog team. There's engineers. There's our guys. There's the newer the newer troops coming in." And uh, I hesitated about it, but I, I said, you know what? It, it's okay. I'll stay behind. I'll stay behind on this one. And the second that the words left my mouth, I, I immediately felt like I had made a mistake. I don't. I couldn't figure out why. I couldn't put my finger on. I just thought that ah, it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't feel right. But uh, whatever. You know. I just kind of brushed it off. The patrol went out, and one of the soldiers on patrol stopped to give a couple of bottle of water, bottles of water to some local kids. And they took the water, and when they walked away, uh, he was blown up. He was blown up by a by a trigger man who set off an IED once the children were clear. And I heard this on the radio because I was back at base. But when somebody's hit, they don't say their name. They don't say who it is over the air, right? So they passed the standard nine-liner template, which is it's like a template for calling in a casualty. Um, and I, I, I didn't know who it was. I didn't know if it was one of my friends. Maybe it was somebody I didn't know. Um, but I immediately, that's when the shame came. The guilt, it was, it was immediate. It happened right away. And I volunteered because they were looking for people to go out and relieve the guys that were on the scene. And um, I volunteered to go out because I, I thought, well, I have, to, I have to go out there. I mean, I should have been out there in the first place. What was I thinking? Why, was, why am I back here and all my, all my buddies are out there, right? So we went out and we held on to, we held on to the, the, the cordon until morning when the explosive guys could come and uh, do their investigation. And I remember, I remember being on the scene and it was dark and I couldn't see really anything because it was very dark. And at some point, I wasn't required on my security post because there was enough guys. So if you're not on a post, you can you can lay down and sleep if you have time. And I laid down um, very close to where where he had been blown up. And I didn't I didn't know until I woke up in the morning. So I woke up in the morning and surrounded by what was left. And I I just it, that 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 moment for me that that was the shame that was the guilt, and I. And I realized that that was the position that I should have been in. And so I owe, I owe that soldier my life as far as I'm concerned. And I try to do, I try to keep that in my mind when I, when I'm working on our project or I'm, I'm out on a call or, you know, I'm doing something that I have to, I have to try to do the best that I can do because I wouldn't, like, I shouldn't be here in that sense. Right. I felt like that sacrifice was, was, you know, at, at his cost, my life at his cost. Then that was my death. That's what I felt. Um, I realized that there's a lot of a lot of variables. I could have been on that patrol that day, and maybe that wouldn't have happened. Yeah. But I didn't. I didn't feel that way. I couldn't. I couldn't convince myself of that. So then I leave the army and I come home, and I have difficulty transitioning back to civilian life, and I don't. I don't fit in anywhere. And again, the irony being that I no longer felt like I fit into the world that I, that I had fought for. So where do I, where do I fit everywhere I go? Nobody understands me. Yeah. Right. And people don't understand, um, you know, what I'm feeling or what's, what's going through my head. It's a complex amount of emotions. You Very complex. literally went through it's, it's, 
doing your job at the same time i, I absolutely understand why you feel guilty and, and, and everything that went through but the fact that you're here now and what you both are doing is absolutely amazing because everybody's going through you know this type of way or form or feeling like this especially coming from your experiences so you're just a prime example of grit and determination and overcoming adversity so i mean i hope you understand that too thank and, you uh, no no for, no worries i mean and i think it just goes to show like i mean i want to talk about what you went through to aaron is, is is the fact that long long tour like a couple tours three four or just one you're gonna feel something you're gonna go through something at some point because war is no joke it is a messed up thing but there's always a job to do in protecting everybody for your country so um thank you for sharing that aaron would love to know what's your why so i i joined the reserves pretty early like in 2002 and did about nine or ten years in the reserves while i went to school and did my other work and uh then eventually I went for selection and tried out for special operations and I was selected um, through the Canadian Special Operations Regiment, did a year training, became uh, an operator and uh, did a few tours in Central America, did a lot of courses, running around a lot and uh, very busy. And during that time I uh, had a child and my family, my family life very much took a back seat and had a separation and my child came to Toronto and at that point I was kind of struggling with what I wanted to do and who I wanted to be and uh, I ended up uh, I ended up coming and transitioning to Toronto Police. I was unemployed for like a weekend and was picked up on the Monday morning and while that was transition was happening a lot of the guys in my sock were heading to iraq and for isis and all that and i was very torn with the family versus the the sock and where to go and what to do and uh so there there i went from like a special force operator to a brand new police officer recruit in basic police training and uh it was in a weekend so i uh moved to Toronto. My pay went down like 30 or 40 grand. I moved to like the most expensive city in Canada. I was in a court battle. I was trying to figure out where to live, trying to figure out how to see my kid and trying to figure out how to be a police officer and trying to figure out what I, my, my psychologist at the time asked me something that I'll never forget. They asked me, um, what do you enjoy doing? Like, what do you enjoy doing for fun? And I'm like, well, I enjoy doing army stuff and I enjoy like going out and partying and having fun. But I'm like, now, now I'm trying to like figure out who I am as this brand new police officer. And, uh, I wasn't, I didn't connect too well with too many people, but I connected really quickly with Jeremy. Cause I think we, uh, we actually signed our offer letters beside each other. Like our numbers are like one off each other. So they gave it to me first, obviously. And, uh, <laughs> Oh, I'm just kidding. But, uh, yeah. So like I'm six, seven, he's six, eight. We signed it right beside each other. And, uh, Honestly, I looked at Jeremy for a lot of help because I'm like, man, like you got out of the military a while back and I got out like on Friday. Um, and yeah, I was totally lost. Didn't really know what to do. Trying to like figure this new stuff out. And, and you're on tour longer too, right? Are you on more tours? Yeah, my tours are in Central America. Like I was never uh, in any massive gun battles or anything like that. So I was actually very fortunate with my career. Um, but I feel like I missed that too, even though I didn't experience it. I feel like I wish I experienced it, but 
I know it's like it's a fine line of like what you what you train to do versus what you never want to experience. Yeah. Um, but yeah, my heart goes out to the guys that are uh, overseas now, like my guys from my old uh, sock that are still doing doing work and. Uh, you kind of wish you were still there, like especially with all the stuff that's happening internationally. You wish you were involved in that and not uh, and not away from it. But uh, yeah, I kind of chose to be as much of my daughter's life as I could, and uh, and go through the whole court process and all that stuff. But uh, yeah, I got to some pretty like low times, and uh, I really found there was a lot of power in peer support, and peer support was like honestly Jeremy. And, uh, because I was probably more connected to the military because I just got out so recently, I started hearing more and more guys from like my old, uh, my old unit and guys that I passed to the military that killed themselves. And, uh, being on the street, I started seeing that reality is that Toronto's kind of, it could be a sad city for a lot of people. Yeah. And there is a, like... If something happens overseas or if uh, you hear about a sad life overseas, I can kind of compartmentalize that. But when I'm in Toronto and I'm seeing that people live hard lives and veterans live hard lives and I'm like, oh, all I want to do is like help this person. Because when I was in the military, I was like, I'm going to help Canada by doing stuff over there. But now back in Toronto, I'm like, oh, my goodness, like there's a big there's some big problems here that I want to help. And uh, that story was one. And seeing my friends like take their lives was another. I mean, uh, we there was a there was a massive attempt that happened over Christmas that really affects me and Jeremy. And uh, I think uh, like my mental health, you always have to try to keep it in check because uh, it's very hard to help a person if you're not uh, okay yourself. And uh, one of my bosses actually in community partnerships. Uh, she pulled me aside. It's like, Aaron, you're going to go talk to the psychologist. And I was like, Oh, okay. And, uh, I thought that was like a good leadership move to be quite honest. But, uh, yeah, we went through the police train together and I owe a lot of help to Jeremy because, uh, I had those stigmas about, uh, I can do it myself. I can push forward. I can, uh, I don't need help. And, uh, he kind of pushed me towards help. And now that I'm, now that I've received the help and now that I've, uh, seen how good it is and now that i see how people are hurting in the city of toronto all i want to do now is make that connection to the person on the street to these services because i honestly think like veterans affairs canada the legion and osis i think they're the best services in canada i really do like it's uh it's amazing what's available but it's also amazing how there's so many powerful stigmas and it's it's not easy to ask for help and it's we're, we're overcoming that part you know slowly but surely i mean progressively, progressively right because you think of it as like a, just a bunch of you know macho dudes that don't want to talk about their feelings and that went to the army things like that but i think the most manly thing is what we're doing right now is we're going to talk about it right we're going to communicate like i i did better help um, i don't know if you heard of it it's not a sponsorship for that anyway but uh it is you know it's like an online um, texting type of, um, uh, therapist to go to. Right. And, and I would just do that. That way is very discreet. I did my thing, but I think everybody should have somebody to talk to, whether it's, you know, somebody that's close you know, like Jeremy's for you and vice versa, or, you know, it's a professional that can, you know, chat about it. But uh, I think I love the fact that this is what we can talk about, especially in this day and age. And, uh, yeah, you touched on it. I mean, there is still that, okay, 
there's a time and a place where you have to keep it together yeah. where it, it's not, I, I can't be in the middle of a radio call or, you know, fighting overseas and have a breakdown. Yeah. It's just, I recognize that there's a time and a place for that. Right. And the, the military is very good at teaching, teaching people how to do that, but they don't teach you how to turn it off. Yeah. Right? And that's not a slight against them. It's just to achieve their objectives. There's a certain, there's a certain way you have to do things as a soldier. And what we have to realize is that when it's not that time, then it has to be okay for us to talk. Absolutely. And if that is with a friend over, over a drink or, you know, hanging out somewhere quiet where you can be by yourself, if that's what it is for you, then that's good. Do that. But if that's not enough, you have to be realistic with yourself and you have to be honest with yourself and say, okay, well, you know, if my, if, if there's a, if I have a flat tire, I can change my own tire. But if there's something wrong with the engine in my car, I'm going to go to an expert and I'm going to go to a mechanic and have them fix it. And I think that I kind of approach my mental health the same way, right? If I, if I'm just having a dark day, then maybe there's things that I can do to kind of get myself through it and it'll pass. But if it's not just a dark day, then I need to speak to a professional. Yeah. And I, I don't mind sitting here and talking about it because it might help somebody else, right? And the first time that I approached the idea of talking about my mental health, I didn't talk first. I listened. There was a guy that I served with for many years and he, he showed up where I was working and asked me straight up how I was doing. And I deflected and I said, oh, I'm doing great. You know, I'm working. Like, how are you and really I'm, doing? Yeah. Yeah. And that's exactly what he said. He said, how are you really doing? And I, I just, I had to think about it and I deflected and I said, oh, you know, um, oh, I'm, I'm doing great, man. But like, you know, don't worry about me. Uh, there's, there's people that experience way worse things than what I went through and, and they're fine and they're, they're just, you know, they're working. And he's like, man, you know, um, you shouldn't compare your mental health to somebody else's, right? It's not, it's not a competition. Yep. He basically said to me, why should you live a poor quality of life because somebody else may have had it worse than you? Does that make any sense? And it took a long time for me to wrap my head around that, but it stuck with me. And that combined with, um, my, my wife sorted me out pretty quick. She, she started telling me what I needed to hear, not what I wanted to hear. Yeah. And, uh, you know what? It's, a, it's, I, I didn't like it at first, but I realized it's safe. That's why they're there for that's, you. That's, that's right. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and she's a teacher, so she's really, okay, really good at it. Right. Sense, so, <laughs> but it just, it, we have to be realistic with what's going on in your life and, and seek help when, when you're having a difficult problem that you can't control. Absolutely. Right. I mean, I feel like, you know, you both have had very different experiences, but also very similar experiences at the same time. What are those different types of PTSDs or, or mental health illnesses that you see come from people that serve or that you've also that can educate the public too that maybe we got to look out for as well? Some of the, uh, some of the leading ones are anxiety, depression, and PTSD. Uh, survivor's guilt's a big one, but there's something... Um, there's some there's two big concepts that I've learned more and more. It's called the PTSD paradox. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the symptoms a person has um, that are for PTSD are very good on the battlefield, but they're very good at but they're not so good at home life. So for example, emotional numbness, great on the battlefield, awful at home. Yeah. Um, compartmentalization, great on the battlefield, not so good at home. So it's PTSD is very complex and. Uh, so is depression, anxiety, because your life's changed, and uh, 
if you are sitting down with your team and you're planning for like the worst case scenario through mission planning and you say, okay, what if a bomb goes off here? What if we get attacked on the left here? What if we get attacked on the right here? What if this guy breaks his ankle here? Um, I carry that into my personal life. So I'm like, oh, what if, uh, what if the windows open? What if the door is not locked? Did the door magically unlock itself? Let's go check the door again because I can't make a mistake because mistakes before is your life. Is, but mistakes of in my like regular condo is so. Um, I have an advantage too. My fiance is a, a psychologist, so she she you gives guys, me you like just both stacked up yeah. help there. <laughs> help we can get. Yeah, yeah, yeah we definitely yeah. a lot of Good help. job. Shout out to the fiance <laughs> and to the wife. Okay. <laughs> the other one is comorbidity. So this is something that I had to wrap my head around. Where um, if you have PTSD, um, you're going to numb that through booze and drinking. But then if you drink too much your PTSD symptoms, they get worse. So if you apply little tips and tricks like comorbidity to an officer, they'll understand that you can't just address PTSD and you can't just address alcoholism or uh, substance abuse. You got to kind of work with both because they negatively impact each other. So when me and Jeremy were trying to create our training program, we tried to basically put as much into that training program that actually helped me and Jeremy, as well as the tips and tricks to help understand the culture, understand the lifestyle, understand the transitional difficulties, understand mental and physical challenges, understand how to de-escalate, understand what Veterans Affairs Legionosis is, and then understand how to help. So we built that training program over the course of the last two years, maybe since 2019. And, uh, the interesting thing is that we we aren't professionals at any one of those things, but we somehow managed to convince everybody to help us. Um, I don't think there was much convincing. I mean, like, <laughs> think about it. Like, it's clearly there's a gap. Clearly, you know, it needed to be filled and you both came at the right time. And I don't think that... Uh, just because you're not convincing <laughs> doesn't make me laugh. Well, we uh, honestly, we cold called... Uh, echelon front and got a video from Jocko Wilnix that both helped us through our transition. And we said, Hey, this helped me. Let's get that into the program. We contacted Ted talks and said, Hey, let's get this video into the program. Cause that helped me, uh, the Canadian forces. We got them to buy in and provide content. We got bell. Let's talk with Kelly Scanlon. We got, uh, I actually messaged, uh, the five finger death punch band on LinkedIn and somehow convince them to let us have their music video, Wrong Side of Heaven, in our training program. And uh, it was probably like my first week in, no, probably my first month in this office. And I did not fit into this office at all. Like it was, I was very different, let's just say. It's so new blood that needs to get in there. I was in the lunchroom and I had a four hour yelling conversation with the band's media guy for Media Twist. And, uh, the whole time he's like, so how much money are you trying to get out of us? And I'm like, well, I'm not trying to get any money out of you. All I'm doing is creating a training program. And I think your music would be good in the training program. And he's like, well, there must be a, like something's going is on here. Like, like how, come, <laughs> how come, like, how come you don't want any money? And uh, we just had conversations like this for probably the last year. And we got, I think we got a great team. We got, uh, CFIR, a psychology clinic to basically do all the psychology stuff for me. We got our de-escalation experts to come in and do all the de-escalation stuff. 
Um, we got Ashling from Corpcom to do all the corporate communication stuff for us. Um, and we've had a lot of police services look at it. The RCMP is helping us out with it. It's, it's, we're pretty, honestly, sometimes I have to like pinch myself because I think it's like a bit of a dream here, but, uh, proud of yourselves? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely, definitely proud. I, I feel like we're doing the best that we can. It's important. It's important to note too, like it, it should have been obvious to us from the start, but, um, the same principles that you take into war with the team have, have applied to some of the development of our program and, and especially the training. And that's, that's teamwork and collaboration, right? We, we can't do this just on our own. It's just Aaron and Jeremy, it's not going to work. Right. So we needed the collaboration between the Royal Canadian Legion, Veterans Affairs Canada and OSIS, but more internally, um, leveraging, leveraging, local assets as well, local resources, our focus, our focus teams in Toronto police that, that handle all sorts of different, different situations and problems throughout, throughout the city. Uh, they've been monumental in helping us. And we've tried to, we tried to mimic a little bit of what they do in our program, but at the same time, if they're the experts at it, which they are, then then they're the ones who who are going to do it. So if there's a referral that needs to happen, we try to include them in 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 all the referrals and all the development of the program. And uh, focus again has been fantastic in helping us uh, get the program on its feet, as it were. That collaboration is second to none. Absolutely, I can't believe the amount of like support we had from our leadership from 2019 when we sent that email upwards. We. Uh, we got mentored through every different rank level before we hit the chief and we basically pitched our idea to the chief. They created the position for us and uh, I was over the moon by how much support we had from everybody and we had uh, everybody we wanted to join the cause and that was amazing. And now that it's releasing in uh, in next month in Toronto and all our officers are going to do the training program and then have the referral system, the next step is just to push it across Canada because Veterans Affairs, the Legion and OSIS, they're all national organizations and there's veterans across the country that need help. So we have a program that's available for free for everybody now and a system. Well, that's, I mean, that's amazing. Think about it. You, you guys are fighting the internal war that really nobody sees, right? Only that very few experience internally. So, I mean, again, you should be super proud of, of this program. And I think now that it's built, it's here, you got a lot of support. What is, you know, we kind of touched upon it more of like the stigma behind asking for help, but what do you think are the main barriers for veterans to seek out these programs? There's a big culture of in the military and probably in the policing world as well, where, um, you know, you, your job is your job and it's your responsibility to, to do your job and your self-care is your responsibility. You know, if you're, if you're hurt, go to the doctor, if you're, you know, you need to get in shape, then go to the gym and, and get in shape. Um, and with veteran culture and the military culture there, there's, you know, your, your rucksack is your rucksack to carry. That's yours. Nobody's going to help you because that's your job. And if you try to help somebody else, you might get told off because no, I don't want your help. This is my job to carry. Now that unfortunately will sometimes transfer over to somebody's mental health. So when it comes time, I'm having a difficult time with my mental health transitioning to back to civilian life. Well, that's my burden to carry. So no, I don't want to share it with anybody. No, I don't want to help anybody. And I think that sometimes that's the mentality, right? So it's, it's a culture of, of, I don't even want to say, you know, suck it up and move on, but it's your responsibility, 
right? And it's your burden to carry. So when it comes down to your mental health, that just doesn't work. Yeah. It doesn't always work that way. You, you, like I said before, you have to, you have to ask the experts for help, and you have to seek help when you need it. And you can't just tough it out. It doesn't work like that. If you think of your mental health as a as a cup, and you know all the bad stuff that happens or all the trauma you experience fills up that cup. Eventually, you have to empty it, or it's going to overflow. That's that's kind of the way that I think of it myself. Um, that's you know, I'm not an expert. I'm not a doctor, um, but I try to put things in simplified terms for myself because it makes it easier. Of course. And so I think that 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 culture of of handling of shouldering your own burden is can be a barrier when it comes to seeking help for mental health. Of course, you used the mechanic, you know, metaphor before, and I think that's great. But it's like you can't really fix the car while it's driving. That's right. It's on the battlefield, you can't really do these things. You're you know taught to compose and be calm and you know hold everything together. But when you're not there, it's a totally different story. So I totally see where that can go. It's also a little conflicting though, because it feels like you know you guys are brothers in arms and everything, but it's also like hey, watch out for yourself. So that's a little... In selection, when you're going through, there's a part where you want to like help other people, and but there's also a part where you wonder, does that person actually belong? And once you get on the... Uh, once you get into the unit and in the sock, it's like a speeding train. And there's so much stuff. There's so much work. Everything's happening. And it's either you stay on the train or you jump off the train and you go do something else. So you're, you're just running... You run pretty hard and uh, I think you compartmentalize everything until there's a problem. And I think now there's a lot more light on um, improving self-resiliency, healthy habits, all that kind of stuff. And I think more and more uh, we're trying to get past those stigmas. I notice it within Toronto Police as well, getting past the stigmas. And uh, they have a lot of uh, new initiatives that are helping people perform better, which is nice to see. And uh, But yeah, I mean, no one wants to... No one wants to have that hard talk where you're like, hey, I'm having problems. Yeah, of course. And uh, that's why I think family, good friends, good peer support, um, healthy living, healthy lifestyle habits, all that are important. And I honestly think like uh, psychological visits with a trained professional is basically doing bench press for your brain. Like 100%. I want to go full circle here uh, into how we spoke in the beginning about that first story you told me. Um, and this is something we actually haven't done on the podcast before. So we're going to talk to the officers right now. Um, <laughs> what's that advice you'd give some of the officers that are listening to the podcast on how to de-escalate an emergency call or interaction with a veteran? Well, I mean, we, we de-escalate people every single day. It, it happens more than I think a lot of people realize. And there's probably a lot of officers that don't even realize how good they are at it. You know, they just, it just maybe comes naturally to them. It's just they have a way of speaking to somebody that can calm them down um, when they're upset. I think it's, I think it's just important to remember that, um, that knowledge is power, right? So understanding what the person is going through is, is paramount when it comes to de-escalating somebody. So our officers, I think, do a fantastic job of that as it is. Um, but seek out that information. If you don't understand why a veteran, I'll say a veteran, cause we're talking about the program, why a veteran is experiencing the things that they're experiencing or why they said a certain thing or why they acted a certain way on a call, seek that knowledge out and find out because the next time that you deal with them or another veteran, it just makes you that much better at what you're trying to do. Absolutely. I think showing empathy is a big thing. And, uh, I learned really quickly in my policing career that, uh, cops know how to talk and you need to 
get better at talking and it's all about talking. And, uh, I had a supervisor, small stature, skinny guy, and he told me about this crazy violent story and he talked him his, talked his way out of it. I mean, there was no way that that guy was going to fight that person. No way. He was alone and he was in trouble, but he just, you talk, you learn how to talk. And I think you put yourself in their shoes, show some empathy, and then you try to influence behavior. So we follow the behavioral influence stairway um, active listening, good verbal communication, empathy, influencing change. And, uh, we try to build that right into our program with de-escalation. And there's a couple, there's a couple things that are specific to veterans. For example, a veteran's probably going to be thinking tactics. they probably have the capacity to be very violent. They, uh, are probably aware of what's going on. They could be suffering from PTSD and they could be acting a certain way because of PTSD. And, uh, we try to explain all that in our training. Just to wrap up, what are the main goals that you both want to accomplish with the veteran wellness program? Uh, there's a lot of other things we're working towards, but the big thing for me is veteran homelessness and veteran suicide. And, uh, I don't want to see any more of my friends take their lives. Um, it's upsetting. And I think we just want to connect them to the help because the help helped us and it can help other people. And I think with more awareness, um, we can do our part to stop to stop people taking their lives. I can echo that sentiment as well. Um, I want to get as many veterans as possible connected with the benefits that helped me get my life back in order. I was in a dark place for a very long time and I didn't see a way out and it didn't, I didn't have anybody around to help me. Um, and once I started to chip away at the problems that I could control, the other, the other problems weren't so overwhelming. Um, I, want, I want veterans to know that, that there's a way out, that there's a better quality of life, and that you don't have to do it alone. Um, and we want to train our, our, our members to, to be able to share that same sentiment without having a veteran in front of them. In the sense that you know a police officer or a, a, any civilian, any member of Toronto Police who's trained up on this program can engage with a veteran, understand a little bit about what's going on with their life and why they may be experiencing the difficulties that they're experiencing, and at least have kind of a general understanding of, of how to help that person. And you can't ask for help if you don't know what's available to help you, right? How do I ask for a specific program to help me if I don't know it exists? And so that's what we want our officers to be able to do is to, to access the program and say, okay, listen, you know, you're, you're, you lost your job. Well, there's an income replacement benefit that can help you. You know, your, your back is, your back and your knees are, are destroyed from your service because you jumped into airplanes. Well, there's services to help you shovel your snow and mow your lawn. I mean, if you don't know that's there, how are you supposed to ask for that? The biggest barrier is asking. But if you don't know, that's not even an opportunity. Absolutely. The police officers in 22 Division, they grabbed a suicidal male, brought him to the hospital, and then they called, they called us and we came in and we made two phone calls for the person. Now, this person's trying to kill themselves. It doesn't get any worse than that. I made two phone calls. Um, we got the person a hotel for two weeks for free. We got them food cards that night. We got them mental and physical health help that week. They got back into their old job. They got a permanent place to live. And now they're, they're as good as they could be. And they still text me and Jeremy and say thank you. And even another situation where a guy went to Afghanistan, he came back, had a problem, went to jail, got released from jail, 
still suffering, still needs help. And he didn't think he was allowed to get help because he went to jail. Well, that's wrong. We connected him with help. Another guy was an American. He ended up in Toronto, had a ton of problems. He's allowed help too. It's uh, the services are amazing. And all we want to do is connect. It just goes to show the programs working, the programs available are working. And I mean, Aaron, Jeremy, thank you so much for your time. It was a great conversation. And for everybody that's out there, especially the veterans, please, please, please check out the Veterans Wellness Program. We'll put info in the description. And I'm Axel Villamil, so it's 24 Shades of Blue. We're out. Hi.